50% of Americans don't believe a good job is within their reach. That's what we learned diving into the work of Kate Markin Coleman and Stephen Goldsmith in their new book, Growing Fairly. In this eye-opening interview, we unpack their groundbreaking keys to workforce development and equitable job opportunity. Also, the evolving role cities play in the workforce post-pandemic and what education and reskilling opportunities must possess to be successful. We are so excited to share this conversation with you. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, simplifying today's massive disruptions to work, skills, purpose, and what it means to be human with honest conversation, actionable insight, and a sense of humor. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your humble hosts. Alex and I are thrilled to have Kate Markin Coleman and Stephen Goldsmith on the Disrupted Workforce today. Kate directs IAS Advising, LLC, and is a former Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy, and Advancement Officer of YMCA in the U.S. She spent the first half of her career in the private sector, transferring to the social sector after she and her colleagues sold the fintech firm they ran. Coleman was a top official in one of the country's largest nonprofits, National YMCA, where she advanced innovation and effectiveness. She studied cross-sector collaboration as a Harvard Advanced Leadership Fellow and is the co-author of two books that offer practical insights on how to design effective solutions to challenging urban problems. Stephen Goldsmith is the Derek Bach Professor of the Practice of Urban Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he directs Data Smart City Solutions, which is definitely something we are going to be getting into on the podcast today. He previously served as mayor of Indianapolis, deputy mayor of New York City, and chair of AmeriCorps for a decade. Stephen has developed a reputation as one of the country's most innovative and effective local public servants in the last 25 years. He's also been the subject of extensive coverage in national media for his accomplishments and is the author and co-author of eight books on cities and conducts sessions for mayors and senior officials at Harvard. Guys, it is so great to have you both here today. Our focus is on your new book, Growing Fairly, How to Build Opportunity and Equity in Workforce Development, which launched in February of this year. In it, you intend to provide a hopeful and comprehensive set of design principles that, if implemented with fidelity, and persistence will lead to better jobs and greater mobility for more of our citizens. The book emphasizes the critical need for more effective and comprehensively designed regional workforce approaches. Ultimately, this is about workforce development reforms that meet the needs of both employers and workers. Let's dive in. So thank you both for being here. You are very welcome. Delighted to be here. Okay, so let's talk about the making of the book. And this is why this question is really important. You came up with the idea for the book pre-pandemic, and then the world gets turned on its head. You have to spend two years through the disruption of a global pandemic, having conversations with heads of government, business, and nonprofit leaders, such as mayors and chief of staff across the United States. So the question to start us off is, how did you navigate that shift? How big of an impact was it? And did it 
reshape the thesis of the book? Well, why don't, why don't I start and then Steve, you kind of finish off. Here's the, the reality is that when we began the book, so a few stats, when we began the book, more job openings and workers to fill the jobs, but still millions of people underemployed, low wage. Obviously, things flipped during the pandemic. And then we are back where we started in the sense that there are more job openings and people trying to fill. But okay. So, in fact, the pandemic did not change our hypotheses. Mm. It, because it added more urgency to the kinds of changes that we came up with over the course of our research, but it didn't change the direction we, we took. Now, what it did do, though, in terms of mechanics, um, it made it in the beginning ever so slightly more difficult to contact people because they were in, this, in a state trying to figure out how to redo their organizations yes. to change how they operated. But once that phase was over after a couple of months, in fact, it became easier because we could schedule meetings and conversations across the country with much greater ease. And we could bring people together in the same sort of Zoom room mm. that might be from across the country and so got the, the benefit of their speaking with one another. That's really fascinating and, and so interesting to hear that everything came full circle. Um, the first line of the introduction to the book is, quote unquote, our economy needs to work for more Americans. Current and future workers need realistic pathways to living wage jobs. They need access to the training and education necessary to qualify for better jobs. So this concern is the constant drumbeat today on all sides of the workforce, and it's only going to get louder. And a somewhat shocking note in the book is you guys say that half of Americans don't believe a good job is within their reach or that they can advance their careers. Wow. So given that, why are most current approaches to workforce development not working? So, Alex, a good question, and uh, let me quibble with a little bit of the question and then answer it, right? The, and Kate's uh, a real expert on this. We found lots of things that work. We just didn't find very many places where they worked at scale at, at, across the needs of a regional economy. Mm. Uh, so, because I don't want to suggest the absence of really good people and good programs making a difference, but the, the needs were and are overwhelming. Um, that... COVID disruption, if you will, as Kate said, aggravated pre-existing tendencies, right? The issues of race and equity and opportunity, the importance of neighborhoods uh, playing a role that are vital and workable and the other things we're going to talk about here. But um, it did uh, shine a light on the various pieces of the system. I, I would say the short answer to your question is that even though there are programs at work and workforce investment boards that are effective and city mayors that are making a difference, there is an absence of system thinking. There is no workforce development system in the U.S. There are a bunch of pieces of yeah. well-intentioned folks in a community that two-year colleges, four-year colleges, workforce investment boards, employers, employees, uh, city officials, uh, training programs, 
they don't come together in a way that responds to the need of a developing and changing economy or the needs of individuals who are trapped in low-wage jobs. So that's our kind of diagnosis about why workforce development is not working because the system's not working, even though the parts of the system may be working. You know, Stephen, I actually went out, you inspired me to go look. I live in Colorado and we have a Colorado Workforce Development Council. It's governor appointed, it's public-private partnership, and the purpose is to advise, oversee, and integrate the work of Colorado, the Colorado Talent Development Network. So thank you for just inspiring me to go get more informed about what's happening in my regional community to see, uh, you know, how's it going? Well, Nate, your, your comment's interesting for another reason. Color, the state of Colorado is one of the more advanced states on sharing data across various needs and also trying to get it out to consumers, consumers of education and training. But your comment also illustrates another issue. The workforce investment boards are, are federally set up. They're generally configured at the state level and executed at the regional level. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of hands, a lot of rules, a lot of administrative tape. Uh, Kate and I believe that these solutions need to be supported at the state level, but driven at the regional level with more autonomy and discretion about the on the part of the players who are at the regional level. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And this is, I hesitate to use the word unprecedented, but it genuinely is. There are massive disruptions and macro trends reshaping work right now. And Alex and I don't think enough people are aware of the magnitude of the situation and and just how big these macro trends are. So some simple examples, diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to gain gain momentum as it should. We have this growing concern around wealth inequality, skills over degrees, and the need to upskill a billion people ASAP, digital transformation, automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, that machine continues to roll on. The pandemic has a disproportionate impact on women and diverse populations. Many organizations are still doing remote first and hybrid work, which, for example, um, Airbnb just announced work from anywhere and get paid the same just last week. The Great Resignation had almost 50 million people voluntarily resign in 2021. We have this explosion of side hustles. Because people aren't working in a corporation anymore and they're not on site, you can have a side hustle. You can be a freelancer and no one would be the wiser. So that's this whole new thing. Employee loyalty is starting to wane. And then leaders, employers, communities, and cities are scrambling to plug the holes in the boat. This morning, an article broke on Apple where their employees are going to platforms to complain about having to go back to work. So it just seems to me, and I know that's a lot of examples, but let me bring it back home. It seems to me there's a tremendous amount of intersectional workforce challenges that are reshaping the landscape. And my question to you two is, is that what you found in your research or are Alex and I just sort of overly concerned about what's going on? So so let me start by giving you the Cunian Pollyanna-ish answer to this question. I will, in fact, link those two thoughts. Okay. The, the trends that you are talking about were really part of what drove us to write the book in the first place. So you see all of these trends. And the question is, what kinds of policies and programs can we develop to address what we're seeing in the workplace? Yes. So in that sense... 
I don't see an overreaction, but, but if you think about it in my Pollyanna world, in fact, it's those very trends that have elevated the conversation such that we are now at least more broadly shining a spotlight on what doesn't work. And here's why I'm going to bring in Thomas Kuhn. You, you know the structure of scientific revolutions, right? It says when the, when the contraindications to the existing paradigm start to build up so strongly that we have to rethink the existing paradigm, we think that that's where we are. Yes. So it's the amount of conversation. It's the discussion around skills-based hiring. It's so many things are conspiring to say the old paradigm doesn't work. Now let's think about new paradigms. So that was an indirect answer to your question. You just made me really happy. I'd love to hear that. <laughs> Stephen, what are your thoughts there? I don't know if I want to follow that erudite answer so I'm going, to, I'm going to try to let me follow with a political example so we're not you don't compare our answers um so you know i come from a government background where uh laying off workers uh particular union workers is always an issue of sensitivity so productivity changes are always dealt with some degree of apprehension when i was deputy mayor of new york our uh call center received about 25 million calls a year. So that's a, that's a pretty big volume, right? And um, everyone was a little anxious uh, about new technologies. It was a very enlightened call center director in New York City, and he was trying to manage his way through this. So if you stare at this, you go, well, if you use IVRs and call systems and bots, that's, that's a danger. Then if you stand back and you say, is it really? If we diverted a much higher percentage of our calls to machines and you kept the same number of call center operators, but you trained them better to use their discretion to problem solve for the problems that take real human intervention, everybody wins, right? The public employees do more satisfying work. The people calling get more time on task. The people who want to just say, do we have alternate side parking today in New York City? Like, let a machine tell you that, right? If you can't, if you can't read the sign out front, let's just talk to the machine. It'll be much more efficient, right? And so if you look at that and you and you study the workforce, as Kate mentioned, we have a moment in time where this uh, 10 million open jobs and millions of people wanting better jobs, we view that as a half full, not a half empty, a, a mm -hmm. moment in time where you can actually change and adapt to the conditions to create opportunity. If we don't change, and we don't create a workforce system, it will be a dire moment because we'll end up with even a more of a two-sided economy. But if we do create workforce development systems, we can actually shape the future in a very positive way for all concerned. That's a great answer as well. And I would just say that something that we talk about a lot is where can AI, automation, and robotics augment human, human capability in such a way that humans can do more purposeful work. And it's in those use cases where I find the advances in technology can be really inspiring. And of course, there's the other side where it is fully replicating a purposeful, a, a job that a human being thinks is purposeful and providing for their family. And, and in those cases, I think it gets a little bit trickier. But to your point of how you guys thought about it for New York City, I think that is exactly the, the exemplary 
initiative and rollout that most companies should be following when they consider AI and automation today. And uh, I do think that sort of is a natural lead in you guys to the design principles model, which you brought to bear so elegantly in your book. And uh, this is the central artifact of the book. I know we're doing this primarily over audio, so most people will be listening to this, but is there a way to kind of help people understand at a high level, what are these basic principles that they, they should understand and take away? Sure. Why don't I start? Um, so it, as I said earlier, our goal was to go out there and find policies and programs and initiatives that were working. And we spoke to hundreds of people across sectors, across organizations, people who lead organizations, people who staff organizations, people who participated in training programs. Mm -hmm. And from those conversations, we developed 10 principles for architecting a more effective workforce development system. You know, when you do qualitative research, right, and you start to hear the same thing over and over again, you realize, no, it's not quantitative, but you realize that you, you've hit something yes. that is probably accurate and meaningful. So we, we got to that point with these principles. So that first set of principles, and I, I'm trying to draw a picture, but if you can imagine at the very center is are principles that relate to people so that, so that any skilling system, any effort at workforce development has to start by understanding the breadth of the skilling needs of the population it's designed to serve. That sounds obvious, it is not always the case. So if you think about it, the skilling needs range all the way from the justice involved youth who doesn't even want to show up, isn't capable of showing up to a training program, to the incumbent worker who needs some reskilling because the world is changing in his current job. Right. So the first principle, the core principle is start with people understand the breadth of skilling needs in the population, and then tie to that, understand, therefore, that the range of participants of skilling organizations, whether that's employers or nonprofits or educational institutions, has to also be broad to serve the needs of those individuals. The next four principles, so start with people, people enter the system through some sort of a program. And so we identified the characteristics of high-performing programs. And we looked across programs where the occupational content of what they were training varied widely, but they had a number of things in common. So almost all of them, to the extent reasonable, personalize their interventions. In, in other words, they looked at you, Alice, or they looked at you, Nate, tried to understand the barriers that stood in your way and figure out how they could reduce some of that friction so you could participate. Right. Related to that, they also provided, whether directly or through partnerships with others, supports, coaching, wraparound services that made it possible for you to participate and complete a program. The next thing that they had in common was, if you're thinking about an adult learner, an adult learner doesn't have the time or the money to waste in doing something that's not directly tied to that job they are hoping will come from more education or more training. Yes. 
But, but unfortunately, you look around and people's basic reading skills, their writing skills, their math skills, their English language skills are sometimes make it such that even the occupational training is out of reach. Best organizations contextualize learning. They combine adult basic education or ESL or career readiness into their core work. So the organization I love to talk about the most is called JVS. They teach English as a second language. And one of their curriculums, and, and they did a pay for success contract around this actually, and were successful with it. Um, they actually tied the English lessons to interview questions. So nice. the grammar and the language, imagine the first interviewed questions, very basic. What's your name? I mean, do you know? And whereas as it gets more complex, you get more complex grammar. Tell me about a difficult situation. And then the last thing that we saw was that effective programs created bridges to employment, whether it's earn and learn through an internship or an apprenticeship, or whether it's as one organization, I know this sounds contrived, but it actually worked, had high tea with employers every afternoon so that they brought in employers to see kids who had no access to, to individuals who were in the workforce. Um, so those are, those are the four principles that relate to programs. I'll turn it over, Steve, for the system level principles. As Kate mentioned, we divided the uh... 10 principles into three categories. And the last category was the system. And obviously it incorporates the principles that Kate mentioned, but we looked at a system that would bring together the parts of the system on a foundation of data and skills. We discussed skills as the currency that connects the threads in the system so that individuals who are interested, aspiring learners in improving themselves, can see what how a specific training class will add a specific skill which will help produce that ladder, that rung on the ladder of mobility. Right. So it's the it's the foundation of data. It's the transparency of the data about performance and outcomes. It's a agreement in the region on a taxonomy so that we really can tell. What are the skills that are needed now and in the future? Will the employer advertise by skills and not just hire on degrees, which tend to discriminate against folks of color anyway? Not only do they not necessarily, are they not necessarily required, they also discriminate. Can we get the learners and the, the job applicants on their resumes to understand they do have skills? How do they, how do they pull out those skills and how they uh, accumulate additional skills? So, the region is a system, we hope, based on that skilling information and based on that data that brings in the parties and helps put together the economic mobility necessary for success. So what I love about this model is you're taking in the full continuum of all the workers out there. Instead, there's so often in this conversation, people want to focus on sort of the best and the brightest and how do we, all these people who are already in great jobs, how do we get them ramped up for what's next? And you, you all are saying, no, 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 there's a whole body of people out there who need help. And this model can help anyone on the continuum in a thoughtful way. So thank this you. This model that. could even help you, Nate. That's, they, what, that's what's amazing. <laughs> and we know I need to upskill, reskill future skills. So thank you, Alex. 
I wish um, you could get along a little better during our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask a related question about upskilling the workforce in that typically you see that, well, no, let me say historically, you see that happening in academia and in corporations. And you don't really hear a lot about state, city level engagement in this conversation, but your stance is cities need to have that strong regional approach and a position specifically state, developing local talent, investing in neglected neighborhoods and enhancing upward mobility for their citizens. And you also cite that five cities accounted for 90% of all U.S. high-tech job growth from 2005 to 2017. That really surprised and, me. Uh, yeah, I mean, everybody kind of knows where those hotspots are, but the, the curveball is the pandemic hits. And now we've opened a different door. You don't have to be in one of those cities anymore. And increasingly, employers are forced to, and initially they were, agreeing to, and now it's seemingly are forced to consider populations who aren't in their city. So I'm not saying this is the end of an era in terms of the era of the city being over, but how do you see these new forces changing the city and how should cities respond? I think uh, anyone who answers that question with total confidence doesn't know what they're doing, right? The, the factors are too strong and inconsistent. Uh, so let me just kind of guess at the answer. Uh, first of all, we've gone through a period of time pre-COVID for the decade before COVID, where cities worked on attracting the best and the brightest by um, the attractiveness and amenities in their cities, right? So instead of chasing jobs, Mayors chase people, uh, what Richard Florida called the creative class. And that had an appeal and worked in a pretty good extent. We saw, uh, whether it's New York or Boston or even places like I come from, Indianapolis, uh, more and more young professionals moving into the core of the city and creating a sense of vibrancy. Then we have COVID, as you mentioned. Um, we saw before COVID, though, that there were a large number of highly neglected neighborhoods in many of our largest cities, right? So we did in fact have a tale of two cities and in the workforce in our effort concentrates in much of its energy on trying to mitigate the influences of those neighborhoods, right? So if you, if you grow up in a neighborhood that's well-functioning and has a lot of green spaces, and a lot of folks are working and you have a social network, you tend to have opportunities you don't have if you grew up witnessing violence in an area where it's very difficult for you to even get to work because transit's so bad. So the functioning of the neighborhood matters. And even in the pre-COVID build-out, th those neighborhoods didn't share the apparent prosperity of the downtown. So we need to be careful how we think about cities. Nevertheless, your question is correct that cities began to do better and better, and then COVID hits. Um, the mayor of New York City has uh, worried out loud and, and ex exhorted his employers to get their employees back into their offices because it has an effect on their downtowns or, in, or midtown in New York City, uh, where, you know, the guy who sells the 
hot dog on the, in the uh, cart or works in the restaurant or works in the dry cleaners, those customers aren't coming back and those, those real estate properties are in, somewhat in danger. So that is an issue. And we've seen, as you mentioned earlier, that kind of the you know, Apple blog or whatever that that in-demand employees are saying, yeah, I kind of like working from home several days yeah. a week. And uh, I've got a lot of choices, so don't try to club me back into the office or I'm going to go somewhere else. And they'll exert uh, for a while, uh, I think, some leverage. So I would sum it all up in the following way. My guess is that the, the cities, the future of cities is still more bright than not. That the dynamic, however, will slow in terms of that. That there'll be other places, the I don't know, Boise's, Idaho's of the world, that are good places to live, where they have a a number of tech jobs where people continue to move. We've already seen, obviously, Austin is a huge example of that as well. So I think it'll be a blend where these hybrid jobs will occur, but not at the total expense of cities. Okay. Could I add a, 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 not a city twist, but a sort of post-COVID twist? Because we get some form of this question quite frequently when we speak. And the, my concern is that it still leaves out of the equation the tens of millions of people who are in service jobs who will not have the luxury of going home and working from home. Mm -hmm. And so we still have to address their needs. And, and, and part of what we're seeing in the job resignations is less about people who are older retiring early. I mean, that is a component of it, but there's a reshuffling that's going on where people are going from one low wage job to a slightly higher low wage job and so you still have an opportunity question that we have to address irrespective of whether some portion of the workforce now goes fully remote. So, so Kate actually just raised like 10 issues there in that one paragraph. Um, I'm going to try to avoid commenting on each of them. One is the service job itself. Uh, and there's two aspects of that. First aspect is, I hope folks will go back to work in their downtowns so that those service jobs will, will still exist in the numbers they exist in today, right? So that the job won't go away. Secondly, we saw in our work, uh, particularly from MZ Burning Glass data, as Kate mentioned, that there are low-wage jobs that are a step on the a ladder to a better job, and there are low-wage jobs that are steps to other low-wage jobs, mm -hmm. right? And so managing that career trajectory is very important. And then lastly, just to comment on, on kind of Kate's thought, is that we also identified through the skilling data that we worked with in a few cities that if you disaggregate and label work, you can find skills. A waitress has skills. She may not think she has skills, but she has skills. She shows up on time, right? She, she knows customer courtesy. Uh, she, if she's the night manager, she balances the cash register and closes it out at night. Those are skills. Now, they may not be the 
exactly the same skills you need for a customer service representative at Salesforce or wherever the case may be, but, we, but they are the platform up on which additional skills can be layered for better paying jobs. So the, thinking about the importance of the service jobs now and where those folks can go is a key to the future. I love that. And I think it's, it's sort of a perfect segue into something that's been really meaningful for both Nate and myself and, and looking at your, your book and your work and understanding that this is really at its core about transformation and transformation of individuals for, for opportunity and for a better life and keeping them, keeping them relevant. And when you talk about service jobs, some of which are absolutely, uh, you know, lower skill or, or lower paying jobs. You guys mentioned in the book that you literally encountered dozens of people who, when given the opportunity, overcame personal challenges, neighborhood barriers, lifting themselves and their families out of poverty. And that's astounding. And we'd love to know, are there common characteristics or patterns in the people who make this shift to elevate and achieve their potential? So I, I'm, I'm not going to play psychoanalyst on that one, but what we did see were certain conditions or things that happened around them that there was a pattern that got them engaged in a program that ultimately proved to lead to a better job. So someone reached out to them. Someone built a kind of trusting relationship and told them they could do it. The program reduced the friction, as I mentioned before, associated with participating. So helped understand the logistical and psychological challenges that they faced. And then, and, and I, you know, I thought a little bit about whether I want to say this, but quite a few people mentioned that they did it for their kids. Mm. So do I, do I have time to share a story? Yes. So there's a, there was a man that we spoke to who is literally a poster person for a program at CUNY. So, so this is a guy, and this is how his journey started. He's in a job. He's had a career in this area. He's a limousine scheduler. He's having a conversation with his teenage son. His teenage son says, I'm going to drop out of high school. I want to be just like you. You're successful. And that shocked this guy to his core because he felt he was one disaster away, one crisis away from a disaster. Mm -hmm. So that sort of conversation with his kid was like a wake-up call. And he decided to go back and get his GED. While he was getting his GED, someone reached out to him and told him about this program uh, called CUNY ASAP, State Colleges of, in, in the State Colleges of New York. However, getting to the program was problematic. And so they gave him a bus card. As he said, that sounds like nothing. But that was sufficient to get him at least over the original hurdle, sort of the mental hurdle. And then, of course, the program provides, you know, detailed financial scaffolding and coaching and re referral. So lots of things were, but, the, but it's that reaching out and overcoming the initial hesitation that seemed to be a pattern that we saw. That's fascinating. 
Conditions. I love the, even the word you used for that. There are certain conditions that need to be met in order for people to be able to engage and succeed in these programs. Um, let's talk about the college degree because we're on this continuum. We're talking about everyone from people who don't have a GED to people who have college degrees, postgraduate degrees, etc. There's this interesting narrative happening in the world today about the college degree sort of falling from relevance. Is this thing um, falling to skills? Are skills more important? Are they happening faster? Are they more applicable to the market? And the statistics you surface around the attitude shifts on education since the pandemic are staggering. For example, you note the number of Americans who are pessimistic about what additional education can do for them has more than tripled. And the SVP of Consumer Insights at Strata, who sourced this data, said, it's the most concerning thing I have seen in our surveys because it's so widespread. Another data point is less than one in five strongly agree that education will be worth the cost. Now, Alex and I both have degrees, and this is my personal story on this, multiple degrees, and I'm having a conversation with my eight and 10-year-old kids. And I said to them, I don't even know what college is going to look like by the time you two get there. So my question to you, is this the end of an era for colleges? And is the path forward this sort of app um, kind of platform, learn in the flow of work? Or can colleges reinvent and, and turn this around? So, Steve, you're the professor. You answer from the college perspective, and then I'm going to answer from a just tweaking how you were looking at that research and how you might think how we might think about it another way. I love it. Let's do it. Well, first of all, let's be clear. I've got a virtual background at Harvard where I teach. Kate's got a virtual background at the University of Chicago with which she's affiliated. So it's not, we're not really taking the position that college is outdated. <laughs> it would not be in either one of our professional best interests to say that. So let's just deal, deal with that. I said that. <laughs> um, a few observations. I, I agree with what you're telling your kids that we don't know what college is going to look like. Is it going to be three years or five years or technically oriented or what the case may be? Uh, uh, so there were a, a several different issues raised in your question. One, I think Kate will identify will answer, which is how we should think about uplifting folks who don't believe they have a future through college and they're really without hope. And uh, without trying to get into the issue of whether we should uh, forgive student debt, uh, you know, the main issue of the last couple of weeks in Washington, it is interesting that many who want to forgive student debt blame uh, the system on two, that the jobs that people get when they come out of those are almost come out of those two and four year degree programs. They have a lot of debt and that and their jobs don't pay off. Yeah. Right. So that's one of the arguments by folks who want to forgive the student debt. Well, if you back up and you say, well, why do half of the people don't believe the system's going to work for them or that the college is going to make a difference? Well, the answer is because they're rational and it doesn't, right? Yes. It's not because they're necessarily wrong. There are a set of other issues related to self-esteem and in the ability to take the first step, which I think Kate will probably comment on. But let me just say, the system doesn't work 
for everyone. And we've had a legacy of racial uh, discrimination on educational opportunity in this country for a very long time. And so uh, a college degree as the single gating uh, uh, qualification is unfair. Now, having said all that, if every two and four year college graduate got a, got a job in mid-tech and high-tech, we still wouldn't have enough workers. So we're not saying that college is outdated as a concept. We're just saying it's not the only credential upon which promotion and hiring should take place. It's unfair and unnecessary. To, to which I would add, there still exists a college wage premium. So we, we can't you know, ignore that important fact. Let me flip, though, the, the, how we might think about the research. And, and Steve used the word gating. And if you, you know, if you think about the gating process in marketing, kind of what is the first step? How, do you have to, how can you move someone from inaction to consideration? Mm -hmm. What the research that you cited tells us is if we want to move someone from inaction to consideration, and that could be whether it's college or some other kind of credential or a training program. They need to believe that their life circumstances will get better. If we want to move them from consideration to action, we need to help them understand how they can overcome the barriers that they perceive to be in the way of their participating in further education. And if we want to trigger that next step, we actually have to provide some of the things that overcome the barriers. So you could use that research as a way of framing how do we draw people into the system as opposed to simply their skepticism about the system. What you're, what you're saying is that it, the most attractive thing is having a really strong return on investment argument for stepping into any form of education Yes. Um, as a means to get what folks are looking for from a trajectory or career path. Yes, and that ROI has to be made available, it has to be transparent, and oftentimes it has to be translated into language that, that a user can both easily access and understand. And that sometimes takes a navigator to help out. It's also interesting to think about how different an ROI can be for one individual to another, because ah. in the story that you shared, uh, the gentleman whose uh, son said, hey, I wanna be just like you, dad, he said, oh, no, you don't. You know, basically, oh, no, you don't. And so his motivation was, I don't want my son to follow my path. That was his motivation to go and, uh, and upskill and reskill. So it's really interesting. And, you know, I think wherever you are on the spectrum of the skills versus degrees conversation, one thing, you know, we feel really strongly about is the, the, the rise of lifelong learning as an undeniable trait yeah. and uh, something that really will be more and more embraced because things are changing so, so quickly. And you guys talk about that a bit in the book. You reference uh, Michelle R. Weiss's book, uh, Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. And this quote that we loved, um, we are all going to have to prepare for jobs that don't even exist yet. Enter the concept of lifelong learning through the lens of human longevity 
the future of work becomes inextricably tied to the future of learning. Educators, policymakers, and funders give a lot of lip service to the concept of lifelong learning, but this talk rarely translates into action. In fact, resources and funding are often geared toward the traditional 18 to 24-year-old college-going population and less often to working adults, the growing majority of learners. There is little investment in the systems, architecture, and infrastructure needed to facilitate seamless movements in and out of learning and work. And, um, you know, in many ways, this quote is why Nate and I founded the Disrupted Workforce. And we appreciate the systems thinking approach, factoring informal and formal development systems, but this time with a listening ear and eye on human-centered leadership design and client centricity. Will you guys share more about building a workforce development system for jobs that don't exist yet? Well, let's not have quite such a sharp distinction, right? The jobs don't exist yet, but it's not like they're going to be invented totally uh, in a vacuum. Mm. So what we're trying to do here is look at a building a system that's based on skills, that uses data to identify the skills, that, that will work with regional employers to predict where their jobs are going far enough in advance that we can skill up people when the jobs get here in preparation, that creates a conversation where an individual, call it lifelong, lifelong learning or lifelong skilling, right, that an individual has an opportunity to create additional modules of talent, right? So they're stackable, they're definable, they're stackable. There's a personal learning record. There's a taxonomy in the region where everyone's sharing the same words for these skills that mm -hmm. we're going to say, oh, you know what? I don't know exactly what the next set of jobs is going to be, but we've got a really strong advanced manufacturing center in this city. And we're going to predict that it's going to be a fair number of robotics jobs, right? Or we're into medical imaging and we're going to predict this so so that the workforce investment boards are um, in constant contact with the employers predicting their short-term and long-term needs translating that through this platform and the cross-sector collaboration that kate specializes in into training specific training modules in the region right that's how we'll get there in the future we won't wait till the jobs are created and go oh my oh my gosh we don't have anybody to take those jobs we're going to be building and aggregating those skills as we go forward. I like that. And it makes a lot of sense, Stephen. If you even think of LinkedIn, LinkedIn is now one of the best research houses in the country to know what are the emerging jobs and what are the top jobs? What are the jobs that we don't have enough people for? You get into the conversation of artificial intelligence and that pool becomes very, very small. Quantum computing, right? Those kind of emergent fields. And LinkedIn can track that better than anyone because they're seeing those postings hit their platform. So I think it's a, a really insightful way to look at it and then just realize that at that regional level, there has to be that connection and relationships so we can build for those things. Because right now, we're just not keeping up with the kind of emergent jobs that people need to upskill and reskill on. Kate, any, any thoughts there as well? No, I think I, I have nothing to add. Okay. Um, I want to bring 
you two into this conversation. We've talked a lot about the book. There's a really interesting backstory and interplay that we, Alex and I love and we think has to be brought forward. So you two, we want to share with our listeners that you, this is a joint project of a Republican and a Democrat. And this book rejects the polarizing narratives that we see in the media to instead focus on inclusion and cross-sector collaboration as the path forward. Now, considering the last few years and the amount of pain that we've all felt as a country, many would just omit that from the book. You wouldn't even mention it. But you two decided to bring that forth and say, hey, we came together to work on this and there's a greater message behind that. So would you just share a little bit about your bipartisanship and sort of your intention behind bringing this to bear? Okay, so I'm going to start. First of all, we had to make it work because what you haven't said yet is that we're married. <laughs> so therefore, it wasn't going to work if we didn't. And, and I am a very, very progressive Democrat, and Steve is an old school Republican. So that's let we just have to start there. Thank you. You guys but, have been making these differences work for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but you, but you, but you know what? And and and, and I'm going to speak seriously on this this subject. We both in in different sectors have decades as practitioners making change, right? So we're invested with coming up with answers that work and we look at things with a through a practitioner's lens. Mm. And I'm going to say that it is really difficult to look at the potential outcomes of rethinking workforce development and not be on the same page. Yes. Right? Pro increased productivity, more job fulfilling, film. I mean, you just name them all. Those are not partisan outcomes. Just one other, one small personal thing. When, when we went through this, we never once quibbled over a policy. We really didn't. But what we did learn to do was interrogate language. Mm. so that the only issues we had were over words. And so we learned, instead of reacting to the word right away, is to understand what the other person implied by the use of that word. And I actually think that process of interrogating the meaning of words was really important in being able to come to consensus on the policy recommendations. That's a really interesting little hack. What do you mean by that word? De defining it to each other. Literally, or saying this word, and we did have this happen on more than one occasion, means this to the people I think of as being in my kind of domain or sphere or whatever tribe to use some other language. And then we say, okay, then there may be a better word for it. So it doesn't trigger too strong a word. So it doesn't evoke a, 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 a gut response as opposed to a thoughtful response. Yeah. So Kate and Stephen, did you come to a, a consensus or a common agreement on some words that you just said, hey, we're going to shift that definition to something we both can agree on? Yes, but the process of of, uh, of manufacturing a sausage is not one we prefer to discuss. <laughs> well, well, 
I have I have a similar question, which is um, I'm wondering, did you guys bring this same rigor around language selection to the conversations that you were having with people, with organizations and individuals mm. in the process of researching and preparing for this book? Did you have to bring any other tools around curiosity or other ways to help people lean into what might have been an uncomfortable conversation for them? Because this notion of bridge building, I think, is really, really important in so many ways. And any insights there would be great. Inherent in the process we uh, undertook and inherent in the ability to reach across differences is to understand the context in which people live and work and talk. Right. And it's it's not. And so the more we got into the words and lives of people who worked in nonprofits, the people who they were helping, of city officials like, the more you understood when they used a phrase or used a word or expressed something about their lives, how important that context was. And then our reason that we're hopeful in this book and that we're hopeful about this bipartisanship is because. The, the narrative that you can reach across the top of these uh, demographics is that we should really all be in this together. We all have a stake in opportunity, right? Some, you know, some maybe uh, more conservative folks say, just work hard and you'll make it live. But, the, but, but that assumes that, that the people they're talking to have an opportunity to work hard and right. succeed in life. So we ought to be able to agree on opportunity. We ought to be able to agree that that's the ethically and morally right thing to do. We also also be able to agree that with a labor shortage in my region, our regions can have a higher gross regional product if people work and they're more productive. So let's help them work and be more productive and fill those open jobs. So the the enlightened self-interest across different tribes, I like that word, Kate, should bring us together around the goals of the book. Opportunity. Yes, that's great. So guys, we're essentially at the end of our interview and we'd like to do a quick speed round with you guys to have a little bit of fun here. Uh, some serious, some fun questions. We'd like you to answer in a minute or less if you're able. The first question is, what are the top two things you hope will happen as a result of the book? You first, Steve. Uh, more regions will come together around system thinking and more individuals will have the opportunity in life they deserve. Um, that, that there's lots of talk about skill-based hiring. I'd like to see it married to the notion of cross-sector collaboration because I think those things need to go together. And I, I would like to see people think more expansively about what constitutes skill. Ooh, I like all of those. What did you learn about yourself as you navigated the pandemic while writing this book? We are really fortunate. Mm. All aspects, no matter how tough things may look, what we saw from folks, uh, particularly of color and in service jobs and people without the money and resources they needed is that uh, they deserve more. And we were fortunate to have what we have. I can't possibly add anything more glorious mm. than that. Love that. What are one or two organizations that 
really shined through that you would like to tell our audience about that they should go look up and check out? Roca Inc., uh, an organization I referred to earlier that works with justice-involved youth. Mm. And I, boy, there's so many. Uh, uh, I like JVS in Boston, too. Mm. Thank you. One utterly human question. Are you two doing anything fun and fantastic this summer? Great. Okay. okay. So I'm, let me, I'm going to answer this from, for Steve, okay? And then <laughs> okay. he can answer it for me. He, Steve is going to say to you, yes, I'm going to work. <laughs> That's a very, a very predictable and appropriate and correct answer in my behalf. And what are you, what would you answer for me? Uh, bike ride and uh, be a mom and grandmother. Yeah, love it. A lot of gender in there, but what can I say? Hey, if if you're in love with what you do, then it feels fun and fantastic. So that is <laughs> well, a perfect. We concept. we do most things together. You the way you asked the question, we answered separately. But our our we we worked on the book together. We do. Uh, uh, Kate does a lot of volunteering in uh, social uh, network area, and I'm eager to learn from her in that. And so we'll uh, we'll have a good summer uh, doing other podcasts, promoting our book, and yeah. with the kids and grandkids. Fantastic, you guys! Thank you so much, Stephen, Kate, for your servant leadership, commitment to bring this important work to life through the pandemic. You know, you could have easily put this on the back burner, and we are so grateful to have you on the show, to share your book with our listeners, and to be on this shared journey of helping people prepare for the future of work. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you for being with us today. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give us a rating. Five-star reviews are, of course, acceptable, and please also share this with your people at work and at home. The Disrupted Workforce was created to address the transformational change that's already begun and to help individuals and organizations grow in these dynamic times. We are excited to be on this journey with you, and we are here to help. See you next episode.